they're going at that core human need to belong. And they're saying, if you dare to think outside of the herd or the consensus view, you don't belong. Right. It's also, to... I think, an attack on your legitimacy as a researcher um, mm-hmm. and, a, and a journalist is what conspiracy theory comes down to, because that doesn't happen to mainstream media people, people that subscribe yes. to the narratives uh, that are safe enough for you to be in mainstream media and for your career in mainstream media to continue um, unimpeded, right? Um, it, it's to follow those if you want success um, in media and all of this stuff and not to be bullied or labeled these things. And if you are labeled those things, they say, well, you're not a legitimate real journalist. You're a conspiracy theorist. The following is the audio version of a video released at peakprosperity.com. Visit peakprosperity.com to watch the video and to find other insightful content such as articles, discussion forums, and exclusive subscriber-only content. Welcome, everyone, to this Peak Prosperity Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Martinson, and today we're going to take a deep dive with one of the very few remaining investigative journalists, and certainly one of the most fearless, Whitney Webb. Now, we've received many many requests to have Whitney on the show. And so if you're one of those people sending in that suggestion, first, thank you. And second, you're in for a real treat today. However, I am going to put a caution on this episode. We're going to cover topics that many would, and quite rightly, find upsetting. And I recognize that I have an unusually high tolerance for engaging in such inquiry and exploring concepts, no matter how dark or frightening they might be, as long as they come with data. Now, many people, hey, they're not built this way, and that's perfectly okay. I honor and respect that sort of diversity. And as always, if this content is not adding constructively to your life, then I'll trust you to make that determination. So, how do I properly introduce Whitney? Well, she's been writing for a long time about topics that the mainstream media has either been, let's say, very slow to report on, or, through sins of omission, has avoided entirely. The theme, which we'll cover today, usually revolves around what's really happening beneath the surface. As is nearly always the case, that means exploring things that are not yet in the consensus view. It means assembling your own facts and making connections that are not yet well explored. It's a bit like a detective on a case, right? There's a process that involves three things. First, the physical evidence, right? You got blood stains and things like that. Two, You got these eyewitness reports, varying degrees of reliability. And three, then you get the patterns that emerge, both from what's there and usually as well what's not there, right? Remember the case in Sherlock Holmes' case where it was the dog that did not bark that gave away the perpetrator, right? Yeah, because the dog must have known who this person was because it didn't bark. Well, sometimes it's what's missing that actually tells the tale. Whitney is a master of this process, honed over many years of being in the trenches, if I can put it that way. Whitney Webb, welcome to the program. It is so good to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Whitney, I'd like to start here. Tell us about your background and and how you got started in investigative journalism. Uh, Well, originally, I I started off writing small articles for a site that is now defunct uh, uh, back in 2016. Uh, And then shortly thereafter, I was hired for Mint Press News, where I started off as a staff writer. Um, And before I left in the beginning of 2020, was their senior investigative reporter. Uh, Some people may know me uh, from my work there. Um, I did a series on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. 
that uh, got quite uh, widely circulated to my uh, surprise because I went quite deep into the intelligence uh, community ties of the Epstein-Maxwell network, which was largely avoided uh, by, by many outlets, including an independent media. Um, so I was happy to see uh, interest in uh, in, in the truth of that matter specifically uh, from people. Uh, since then, uh, I've, I've launched my own thing and also collaborate um, with The Last American Vagabond where other people write. Uh, my own website that I set up, um, I think around last June or July is uh, unlimitedhangout.com uh, where you can find all of my work, including some of which was published previously at Mintcrest and, and also at The Last American Vagabond. Uh, if you're interested in uh, things I say uh, during this interview that may seem fantastical to some, I can assure you that they are sourced and documented uh, within uh, the often uh, lengthy reports on my website. And that part of, of documentation, really critical, especially uh, for my audience. So we, we document everything. We just we look at the data. Um, and it's been astonishing the degree to which that, that that's been suppressed. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So um, I noticed that you have a number of other writers uh, at unlimitedhangout.com. Unlimited Hangout, uh, decode that name for us, would you? <laughs> Uh, sure, it's it's a play on words for a term uh, used or originally coined uh, by the Central Intelligence Agency, and a lot of my work tends to focus um, on intelligence agencies in some capacities, if not directly, then indirectly. Um, a limited hangout is essentially a media asset. Uh, that provides uh, part of the story, but only part and a part that is shocking enough uh, to get people, uh, you know, enthused and interested and to trust. Uh, this media asset who then, after gaining that trust, begins to uh, start weaving in uh, government, uh, state, or intelligence community talking points uh, into the conversation after gaining that initial trust with the shocking uh, initial information. So the, the intended uh, idea behind Unlimited Hangout is that we endeavor to never do that and to provide all the facts and all the doc documentation and let people reach uh, you know, uh, their own conclusions based on the evidence uh, provided therein. Now, now there's certainly the, the retail level story. That's the one we're all fed. Um, you can consume it anytime you want. It's free. It's on every airport uh, TV monitor playing CNN. So that's the retail level. There, there's a wholesale level where, where, you know, there's something, there's clearly things happening that, that we don't know about all the time. And then um, there's some other forces beyond that driving that. So we're going to be down here in these next couple layers, but let's, let's go back. Let's set the stage for people on something they can get their arms or minds around. So I don't know, it could be babies in incubators in, in the first um, war. It could be aluminum tubes in the second Iraq war. Can you give us an example of, 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 a, of a limited hangout that, that was sort of played its role and then turned out to be completely false? Either of those or other ones, whatever works for you. Um, yes, but I, I uh, might need some time to think uh, probably of, of the best, maybe most accessible example. Um, because there, there's just you know, really more often than not any sort of crisis um, that emerges is, is bound to have um, that take place. Um, and I think that is certainly happening uh, now uh, with the crisis that's, that's uh, you know, the COVID crisis and, mm -hmm. and all of that uh, to a significant degree um, or the 2008 financial crisis um, of September 11th, 2001, things like that. So um, I guess probably uh, maybe a controversial but accessible example um, would be the events of September 11th, 2001. Uh, so for example, the 9-11 Commission, the two chairs of that um, 
wrote um, a book uh, where uh, they essentially say that their conclusion, the conclusions of the 9-11 Commission, which they led, were unable to answer key questions about that day and that they were uh, lied to by top military and intelligence officials. Thus, uh, from the 9-11 Commission's own admission, uh, the official story, which is the 9-11 Commission story, is incomplete. Um, and uh, but however, numerous uh, people in mainstream and also independent media assert that questioning that official story, despite what the leaders of the 9-11 Commission have said, is uh, tantamount to crazy talk uh, or, uh, you know, just totally uh, delusional to even engage in that type of um, conversation when, you know, that is an event that led to uh, major <laughs> policy shifts, led to wars led to an erosion of civil liberties, had a massive impact. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that um, the realm of discussion on that topic has been forced to be so limited uh, for so long. And, you know, I think that's pretty significant. And if the intelligence commission, uh, you know, intelligence community was even lying uh, to the 9-11 commission, uh, you can be, you can rest assured that media assets they have access to have also helped in preventing any sort of question about what happened that day, uh, you know, have any sort of meaningful impact in the media sphere. Uh, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up because uh, for context, uh, I think you can still find this fact out. Uh, the commission was granted a, 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 the luxurious sum of $15 million in order to investigate arguably the biggest event in U.S. history, in, in recent U.S. history that led to these massive, massive changes, wars, all kinds of really big impacts off of that 15 million. For context, $48 million was spent investigating the blue dress uh, under, you know, Bill Clinton's time, right? So, so you just compare those numbers, 15 million to investigate that day. It's interesting you bring that up because that was the thing that got me started. So it's actually a long chain of dots for us having this conversation, for me doing what I do today, began with a report that a friend of mine sent me that talked about there was this United States um, Geological Survey, a USGS plane flew over the ground zero of, of 9-11 and noted that in the basements of buildings one, two, and seven, there were these heat signatures that were impossibly high. I mean, thousand, like 1700 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm a scientist by training. I've done my physics, my chemistry, my organic chemistry. And I understood that the exothermic potential of a, of a fire was, it was impossible for those heat signatures to be there based on the story I'd been told. And I remember just how disorienting that was for me because I had data that said the story I'd been fed was completely impossible. You could get the best office fire, have pure oxygen, have fans going, and you won't achieve the temperatures that we saw. So it had to have some other explanation, right? That's what got me started because once you start pulling at something like that, you say, well, if that's false, and it turns out on that day, 9-11, there's so much that's physically impossible two and a quarter seconds of free fall, this, that, and that. I remember it, though, as being a very disorienting time because I was holding a narrative that I had to completely dismantle, and you have to give up a lot. Faith in authority, trust in the government, there was a lot. What guy, what, what, why are you sitting there? Was, was there an event, was there a moment where you just said, this isn't right, and you knew it, and has got you there? Well, you know, actually for me, it was also 9-11, but uh, it may have been a little different for me because I am currently uh, 31. So I was about like 10 years old uh, mm -hmm. when 9-11 happened. And um, the reaction among my sixth grade class uh, was a little weird. Uh, I, I just remember people not even in my sixth grade class just kind of being like, wait, what? This doesn't, you know, and the, those are sixth graders. And then a few uh, years later, you know, 
Um, some of these are 9-11 truth documentaries and some more information came out and some things really caught my attention, like the fact that the day before the Pentagon had announced uh, missing trillions uh, and, of course, the part of the Pentagon that was hit by these apparently uh, genius terrorists that can uh, you know, outsmart the whole U.S. military is not the part where the military leadership is, but instead uh, the accounting wing of the Pentagon that's trying to find the trillions, uh, destroying all those computers, trying that with, with that information in it, and also the people that were in a position to be able to find uh, that money, uh, and, you know, among other coincidences um, of that day, of which uh, <laughs> there are many, and there are people that have devoted you know, uh, their careers uh, to that day specifically, but I just find it very um, fascinating, but also disturbing that, you know, 20 uh, years later or so, there is still, uh, even within independent media and, you know, uh, it's just supposedly more critically thinking and, and adversarial uh, than mainstream media, that there is even this, um, this, uh, I guess, control of the narrative in the sense that people are bullied uh, or smeared or attacked for even questioning, even the slightest uh, deviation from that official narrative is still frowned upon, uh, despite the fact that most of us in independent media uh, can agree that the war on terror and a lot of the policies that followed were a disaster. And we know that the Bush administration lied about Iraq. So why wouldn't they have lied about other things, even if they preceded uh, the Iraq war? It's the same people, the same liars, uh, you know. So, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think that would probably be a good example of, of, of limited hangout behavior. But there's also people that you know, and uh, promote that, uh, you know, talking point aren't necessarily bought out media assets, but I think they may have been influenced by people that were and promote those uh, talking points as their own, uh, right? So um, I just want to stress that I don't think absolutely everyone that holds that view is being paid off by the CIA or something. Uh, but I do think that there are, have been some who have been influential enough uh, to basically set the tone both in mainstream and independent media spheres uh, for something that was an event with major ramifications, not just domestically in the U.S., but globally. I, I, I agree. And I want to talk about this part because, um, uh, you know, for a long time, I'm, I've been branded by many uh, as a conspiracy theorist, which which it happens, it, it happens. Uh, which which now for me is actually code speak for, oh, you're daring to think of things that are running counter to the official narrative. Right. That that often qualifies to, to get you as a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist. But, but if it's about data, so this is what I always do. I always default to the base data, right? And uh, I find that usually the people bandying that about have no access to any of the data because they're unfamiliar with it. They just know that this is verboten territory. So you yeah, just mentioned something interesting. Yeah, that, that you say that nobody has to tell the journalists how to write something that would slam somebody for daring to question 9-11. They kind of know it. How did that get started? Because for me, conspiracy theory, you would know better than me, but I believe that's a CIA term that they put out there and they've weaponized, and I think weaponized very successfully. What, what's your relationship to that term and how it came about? Well, um, you know, I'm not an expert on the JFK assassination, but that's when that term was born in order to discredit people who questioned the conclusions of the Warren Commission, which, of course, had numerous conflicts of interest with people um, involved in uh, nefarious activity and malfeasance uh, around uh, the events that led to the death of the sitting president. Um, 
And of course, you know, the uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's views on the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, his promise to, uh, you know, smash them into a thousand pieces and scatter them into the wind, his sacking of Alan Dulles, the uh, CIA director who believed himself to be uh, all powerful and was certainly very powerful among other things, certainly didn't endear him <laughs> to the intelligence community. Um, and there is a lot of connections, of course, of, of people and events in his, um, in his death to uh, organized crime, specifically the National Crime Syndicate, uh, led by Mayor Lansky, which teamed up with the precursor to the CIA, the OSS, in World War II, and then the CIA under Alan Dulles continued that alliance, which originally was justified out of wartime necessity, uh, but continued not so covertly because a lot of those same uh, organized criminals uh, were in their assassination squads uh, in, in efforts to do Cuban regime change, among other things. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> a story for another day, but anyway, there's a lot of questions uh, about the Warren Commission. And actually at this point in history, according to polling, a majority of Americans have questions about the official story of the, of the JFK assassination. Um, but that, that was developed by the CIA in collaboration with media assets to sort of use, uh, to laugh away uh, responsible criticism and use, make it basically a pejorative term, despite the fact that conspiracy is something that someone in the US can actually be indicted for as a crime. Conspiracies do happen. Uh, there are cons confirmed conspiracies uh, throughout history, uh, going back thousands of years, uh, you know, like the death of Julius Caesar and things like that, for example. So it's not like conspiracies don't happen. Um, to develop theories about conspiracies happening in theory is what prosecutors would do when uh, prosecuting someone for the crime of a conspiracy. So the term itself uh, didn't used to have this connotation it has, but the CIA uh, weaponized it as such as a way to sort of uh, uh, basically say that, oh, whoever uh, theorizes about conspiracy theories is a crazy person. And of course, since then, it's been this tinfoil hat wearing, you know, thing and all these different associations have been added culturally to that. Of course, that has taken place uh, largely through the media. Some of those uh, media uh, people and outlets being paid assets, others not. Um, but at this point, you know, it's essentially used to uh, uh, go after anyone that strays from the official narrative and to essentially make examples of people uh, so that other people in media don't get that uh, pesky idea of following the data wherever it leads um, and instead, you know, stick to uh, the safe uh, topics and uh, the official narratives about world events. Yeah, I, I feel like some much of this is sort of psychological territory, not facts. Uh, so to me, a lot of people bandy about the conspiracy theory angle as a means of of marginalizing me. They try and do it to, to push me out. It's kind of like I, I think of that TV show Survivor, you know, where they come and they snuff your candle out, you know, and, and you have to leave the island. Right. That's what. So so I feel like like the people who use that term, they're really trying to um, shame, marginalize um, otherwise push you out. You're not welcome here anymore. You've, you've, they're, they're going at that core human need to belong. And they're saying, if you dare to think outside of the herd or the consensus view, you don't belong. Right. It's, it's also, I think, an attack on your legitimacy as a researcher um, and, a, and a journalist is what conspiracy theory comes down to, because that doesn't happen to mainstream media people, people that subscribe yes. to the narratives uh, that are safe enough for you to be in mainstream media and for your career in mainstream media to continue 
um, unimpeded, right? Um, it, it's to follow those if you want success um, in media and all of this stuff and not to be bullied or labeled these things. And if you are labeled those things, they say, well, you're not a legitimate real journalist. You're a conspiracy theorist. And yeah. this has happened uh, in, on numerous occasions uh, over the past uh, several decades since that term was weaponized. Yeah. And, and so um, I've had the, the good fortune to meet G. Edward Griffin a number of times. He's just a, and his wife, Pat. They're just wonderful, wonderful people. Nicest, most affable guy you'd want to meet. But on Wikipedia, who, by the way, I got my Wikipedia page got taken down less than three weeks after I started reporting on COVID. And my reporting was just was simple reporting. It's just here's the facts. Right. Here's the WHO's own pandemic guidelines. According to this, we're in a pandemic a month before they said we were. Right. So I got my Wikipedia page got taken down instantly. So I go to this this guy's webpage, and I don't know if you know him, but he wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's just a, it's a wonderfully, beautifully researched book. And when I sat down and interviewed him a while ago, I said, hey, Ed, um, your book came out in the 90s. Has anybody ever credibly come forward and said, here's where you got any one fact wrong in this book? He said, nope, he's never had anybody come forward and say this date was wrong, the fact was wrong, the quote was wrong, something. There's ne it's never been challenged that way. And here's how Wikipedia classifies him. It says, uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, born November 7th, 1931, is an American author, filmmaker, and conspiracy theorist. Griffin's writings promote a number of right-wing views and conspiracy theories. See how they put those two together? Regarding various of his political defense and healthcare interests, he is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, which advances debunked conspiracy theories about the Federal Reserve System. And then they footnote it, four. So I'm like, what's footnote number four? And it's a book written by this guy who, who's not on, uh, he, he wrote something called Pranksters Making Mischief in the Modern World. And the debunking book doesn't even go into any of his facts. It's a, it's ranked 1,578,000 on Amazon. It's like this nothing book. And that's their, that's their authoritative source for saying debunked. <laughs> right? So we run into this a lot. Do you have a Wikipedia page? Uh, I don't believe I do, but I haven't checked since I rarely use Wikipedia uh, as a source, sure. if ever. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I know that some people uh, do, uh, particularly journalists that um, from the beginning of the Syria conflict challenged those narratives, which turned out to be true, of course, yeah. what they were um, reporting at the time, still today, uh, very aggressively labeled conspiracy theorists. Um and it's something that people that have stuck to their guns and stuck, you know, to the data and, and the facts from the beginning, even when it's unpopular, um, you know, tend to experience more often than not. It's unfortunate. And yeah. I actually experienced something like that, some, uh, something like that, not with Wikipedia, but with Patreon. Um, I was deplatformed from Patreon earlier this year um, over an article I wrote. Um, about the uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, I wrote it in December and Patreon, I never posted it to Patreon, but Patreon said I must remove it from my website or I would be uh, removed from Patreon. Um, they sent me this uh, sample letter um, that they send to other people they accuse of medical misinformation. And there they say, here is a post of yours uh, or something of yours. It's an example of, of misinformation that violates our policies. And on mine, uh, they left it blank, which I found interesting. Um, so, <laughs> so your example is blank? Yes. So um, I replied to them and said, um, if you're going to deplatform me and demonetize me, can you at least provide an example of misinformation uh, so I could respond? They posted the link to this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. I said, could you point to any fact uh, that is inaccurate? 
or you know a counter analysis uh, anything like that and they said well the issue isn't that you know whether it's factually inaccurate or not we're just worried that people may read it and be uh, more vaccine hesitant uh, and so because of that, we, uh, you know, uh, demand that you remove this from your own website. Uh, that is something I never posted to Patreon, um, if you wish to continue using our service. Um, and so I just went ahead and uh, deleted my Patreon for them uh, after <laughs> that, because I'm not going to censor uh, factually accurate content. Um, and of course, you know, if more people had read that, you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine has since been banned in several countries around the world, or its use has been restricted uh, to, you know, people 40 or 60 and up and things like that in different countries because of side effects. And a lot of the reporting I did there was about how the Jenner Institute at Oxford, which produced this vaccine, has a history of uh, fudging the data and uh, engaging in dishonest practices with respect to animal and also human trials. And, um, violating informed consent, among other things. And of course, um, a considerable amount of effort uh, or, or detail was given to their uh, connections to the Wellcome Trust. And uh, I, I may have aired out some information about uh, the Wellcome Trust, the world's uh, largest and, and wealthiest uh, private medical charity uh, that I don't think they wanted uh, to be made public. Uh, and I also, uh, in there, uh, discussed uh, Google's investment in that vaccine through Vax Attack, which may suggest why they have been so uh, aggressively through YouTube uh, censoring things that are critical of, of uh, different COVID-19 vaccines, whether factually accurate or not. Uh, and you know, I did a discussion on that article with James Corbett. It was his first strike on his YouTube channel, which has now since uh, been deleted. Um, so you know, it's, it's pretty telling that this stuff uh, has been happening to a very significant degree, specifically in the last year and a half, but it has happened before. Uh, this is just really that same agenda that's been uh, very open since 2016, essentially going into overdrive in the last year and a half. Yeah, and, and to be clear, some of the side effects, as you called them, from the AstraZeneca vaccine include intracranial hemorrhaging and uh, uh, venous thrombosis and um, uh, things that lead to heart attacks. Uh, brain damage, swelling. Uh, it's pretty bad. Not for everybody, but I mean, for more than any other vaccine I'm aware of, uh, that one has some problems, but so do the mRNA vaccines. I mean, lots and lots and lots of problems. So it's crazy that Patreon says, factually accurate, but we're worried that this might lead to vaccine hesitancy, um, as, as if that was anything they could quantify or point to or otherwise say. There, there should have been some public debate. They can say, listen, we've had this big public debate. We've talked about how important it is to be vaccinated. We've talked about what happens if people aren't vaccinated and we've run the risk benefit ratios and here's where we've come out, right? Nobody's even had that conversation that I'm aware of, not, not out here at the retail level. Like I can't find that conversation. Have you, are you aware of any such conversation? Not, not really that I've seen. I mean, essentially anything that's deemed vaccine hesitant is, is censored immediately or scrubbed or uh, has its headline change. I mean, you know, there's been some shifts recently in mainstream narrative with respect to things like lab leak theory and stuff relatively recently, a very mm -hmm. dramatic pivot on some things like that. And maybe I guess you could argue ivermectin. Uh, to a degree, uh, more recently with more high profile people and things like that, um, you know, uh, bringing that to the forefront and it's somehow uh, because of that becoming more permissible to ask uh, those questions and, and, and have those discussions uh, more openly. Uh, 
but last year it was it was not. So it's also interesting to reflect on why those shifts happen, why they're suddenly okay, um, and and things like that. But yeah, it's uh, I haven't really seen uh, <laughs> much critical reporting uh, from the mainstream media as it relates to COVID nineteen. Um, which I think, you know, is, uh, is, is pretty uh, indicative of, of why we are in uh, the current situation we are in. But also, of course, I, I would argue that's obviously directly informed by the extreme censorship stance that big tech has taken um, over the last year and a half. Mainstream media, just like many people in independent media, depend on big tech platforms more often than not uh, for circulation and distribution of their content. So... Now, so many, so many areas to talk about, um, but I want to, let's back up just one second to this idea of information is power, right? Once upon a time, gold was power and oil's been power, but information's truly power. We know that. We know that the CIA has been focused on it. I've talked with ex-CIA people from 30 years ago saying, oh yeah, we were totally focused on information. It's a, it's a, a, a theater for operational control. I remember way back in the early days of Reddit, they ran this thing showing the IP addresses with the most activity and the IP address with the most activity was the one right out this little town in North Carolina, right outside of Fort Hood, right? Um, and it's just just weird, you know, and so you can only imagine that there were cubicle farms of people early, you know, early sock puppet sort of accounts, right? And then Snowden comes along and in 2015 he releases this thing. There's this PowerPoint from the GCHQ which shows gambits for deception. It's a six by six array, 36 separate strategies for derailing, sliding, slipping, controlling, shaming, marginalizing, swamping online conversations, and that they were using bots to do that all the way back in 2015, mm-hmm. right? Like these are, these are sem- semantically accurate AI programs that you can't detect are not humans controlling the conversation to, to create the impression that you're swamped. This is what most people think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How much, how much do you think that like, out here in the world where most people inhabit, call it Twitter, Facebook, how much do you think they're getting a view into the real world as no, compared to a controlled about, world? Oh, sorry. Uh, I think it, it has, uh, those influence operations are more sophisticated now, and it's all about managing uh, people's perception of reality and public opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. We also know that like polling companies have been ma- manipulated to this effect, maybe the most accessible example for people of that in the US would be, you know, before the 2016 election and how wrong so many of those polls uh, were. Uh, it's worth pointing out that one of the main polling companies with like COVID-19 is called uh, Ipsos Mori. It receives a lot of funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They have a conflict of interest with shaping uh, public opinion, which polling is known to do, um, both to governments, the private sector and philanthropists. Um, so they tend to uh, use those uh, more often than not to try and get uh, people who are on the fence to be like, well, this is what the majority is doing. So I guess I want to be with everyone else. And, you know, they tend to uh, try and manipulate human psychology to the greatest extent possible, I think, in that sense. And social media has given them uh, a major opportunity to do that. Um, what's uh, interesting as well, uh, and something I find fascinating, at least in the case of Facebook, not so uh, sure if this is the case for Twitter, because I've never looked into their origins so much, but Facebook has a lot of uh, interesting ties uh, to uh, both DARPA and sort of the neoconservative establishment of the Bush administration upon its establishment. Uh, so prior to Facebook being created, DARPA had a program called LifeLog that is essentially analogous to what Facebook uh, would become. It was shuttered the exact day that Facebook as a company launched. Um, one of the main early uh 
key players uh, in Facebook is a, it was a man named Sean Parker who openly admits that the CIA approached him and tried to, and recruited him at age 16. Uh, he previously was involved with the founding of Napster. Sean Parker later uh, connects uh, Facebook and essentially puts that company on the map uh, by bringing in Peter Thiel, uh, the first main outside investor into Facebook whose investment made them uh, viable as a company and allowed them to become the behemoth they are today. And that exact time was also when Peter Thiel was setting up Palantir. And what Palantir was, and also what Facebook was, um, were efforts of the now defunct Information Awareness Office at DARPA uh, that was very controversial after 9-11 was being run by uh, General John Poindexter, an Iran-Contra criminal um, involved in continuity of government and these main uh, the main core stuff. Uh, from the Reagan administration, he was brought on to essentially lead the Total Information Awareness Program, as it was called, uh, which was shut down after a lot of uh, pushback from Congress and, and, and Congress and the ACLU and even mainstream media, the New York Times called it the end of civil liberties in the U.S. entirely. And so uh, working with Richard Pearl, uh, one of the advisors to the Department of Defense and one of the uh, arch neocons, uh, <laughs> essentially, um, uh, uh, Peter Thiel worked directly with Richard Pearl, this is documented, uh, to basically rebuild that program. And that's what Palantir became. And it's no coincidence that, you know, Facebook morphs into what LifeLog, another DARPA program that was intimately related to total information awareness, he comes in uh, with this money while he's trying to rebuild that whole uh, domestic terror apparatus, essentially. Um, and that is what Facebook has become. And that's why it's no coincidence now that you see Facebook so eagerly participate participating in the Biden's domestic terror strategy with this new pop-up window of, have you been exposed to extremist content? Report your friends and family as potential extremists and things like that, which is a policy that DHS has been promoting and, and you know, the, the domestic terror strategy calls for as well, which uh, it's no coincidence. The domestic terror strategy focuses so much on, on the info sphere and social media, uh, specifically Facebook posts, which we've seen after January 6th, uh, your Facebook posts and your Facebook history is enough to get you arrested um, for, uh, you know, uh, various different crimes um, in, in this new era uh, in the United States in which we are living. Um, but as far as total domination and control of, of uh, the cyber territory in the infosphere, um, oddly enough, this actually goes back to uh, what many people, uh, document many people may know that was authored by the Project for a New American Century in September 2000, Rebuilding America's Defenses. People may know it because of the claim uh, that a new Pearl Harbor a year before 9-11 was needed to usher in a bunch of these policies. Uh, what's fascinating is that the chapter uh, that quote is in, the policies that is a direct reference to is the creation of Space Force, which manifests several years later um, under the Trump administration and complete control of the cyber domain and talks about the future of cyber warfare, uh, both international, uh, both abroad and also domestically, and this desire of the neoconservatives uh, back in this period to establish total control over uh, the flow of information. And of course, um, if you, uh, in an objective, nonpartisan way, follow US politics, you are probably uh, more uh, probably aware that the neoconservatives share many goals with the Democratic Party. Um, and they're really not so different in terms of the agendas and practices they pursue. They are very different in terms of rhetoric, but in terms of uh, agendas, you know, they essentially continue the agendas of their predecessors. 
um, and whatnot. So, you know, this agenda has uh, that's laid out in this document has has advanced considerably, uh, but also shows that uh, you know what a threat independent media and critical thinkers uh, are to this effort because obviously any pushback. Uh, against these narratives and, and these efforts to manipulate people's perceptions is, is a direct threat to their dominance uh, over the cyber domain. Uh, and they don't, they, you know, these aren't actors that are necessarily concerned with truth and facts. Uh, you know, they're concerned with narratives that are um, advantageous to their long-term strategic interests, um, which, are, which more often than not don't necessarily uh, align with uh, the facts and the truth or even what's best for uh, the American people in America as, as a nation, uh, they tend to be best for uh, what's best for the national security state and maintaining the status quo uh, and maintaining uh, the oligarchy that works so closely with the national security state and, and things like that. Now, you mentioned a word several times that I, to me is, is the nexus of this, and, and I love facts and, and I'd love to stick to the facts as much as possible, but a little speculation, you know, the why of this all, you mentioned the word control. These people feel like authoritarian control freaks to me. Like everything that I see them doing results in them having more insight, more power, more control over my life, whether that's in digital currencies, my medical records. I hear somebody may knock on my door and ask about my vaccinated status someday or whatever the, the story is. And less and less and less for, for me in terms of freedom, all of that. Now, it was the WEF, the World Economic Forum, a.k.a. the Davos crowd. 2015 or 16, they put out a very helpful little video, really cute. It's, it's one I'm sure you've seen that starts with you'll own nothing and be happy. Yes. Number eight, I want to talk to you about number eight on that, which is Western values will be tested to the breaking point. To me, a Western value is independence, liberty, uh, the right to free determination. I have I have certain rights, not privileges, under um, the the Bill of Rights, right, which include the right to my own body, my privacy, secure in my papers, blah blah blah. The nuclear what, family, I would add to that as well. The nuclear, sure, yeah, love that addition. So so what what does that mean? So to me, when you, if you want to undergo a cultural revolution, you, you kind of have to put somebody's values under assault. That that's kind of how it's done. What do you think they meant by that? Western values will be tested to the breaking point. Dot dot. dot. Well, I I tend to agree with you that it's it's uh, things like uh, independence uh, and, and things that are essentially uh, in the Constitution. Um, you know that that tyranny should be prevented and, and challenged if it does attempt to establish itself and things like that. That obviously runs counter uh, to what the Davos crowd wants, uh, mm -hmm. which is a <laughs> global. Uh, Public-private partnership, which is essentially um, a recipe for global fascism or or communism. I mean, obviously, those are are different systems, but that at the end of the day, they involve uh, basically uh, there being uh, one entity that controls everything. Um, and you can get there with the public and private sector uh, merging to that degree. It just will the private sector be more powerful than the public, or will the public sector be more powerful than the private? Either way, you have a monopolization of power. So I tend to think in terms of discourse today, when we're talking about this uh, effort to establish totalitarianism, uh, some people get lost in the semantics of, oh, it's communism. No, it's fascism. Well, what we're really facing is an effort to monopolize uh, the levers of, of control. You can call it whatever you want, uh, but the, the recipe for public-private partnership and or civil military fusion and all these different words that they have for it is really a recipe uh, for the same disaster. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage people to focus on that because it tends to uh, divide people that want to resist into different partisan crowds who are, or, or who are arguing about vocabulary when we technically all agree on what we want um, 
what we want to resist. So, you know, I think those are um, a lot of the value, specifically, you know, independence, the importance of the individual, I think is there uh, important too there because um, the WEF frames, it's not accurate in practice, but they frame a lot of what they want to implement as collectivism um, and as good for the collective. Uh, and they sort of pull on, you know, some, you know, I guess Star Trek style uh, morality, the needs of the many uh, outweigh the needs of, of the few. And things like that, but it's not, you know, the WEF isn't, doesn't actually care about the needs of the collective, of collective humanity as a whole. They care about the collective needs of, of the billionaire class and, and the elite that make up the Davos crowd. And essentially what they want is to create a system uh, that I tend to refer to as neo-feudalism, where there's this global uh, elite class and there's a global underclass. Uh, so that's why there's been this attack on the middle class in numerous countries in the West and also in other countries uh, that are non-Western. Um, in this effort to establish a giant underclass and these wealth transfers we've seen in 2008 and also in the COVID crisis, uh, which is arguably a, a larger wealth transfer than, than what transpired in 2008, have advanced that uh, significantly. So we are not that far from the era of uh, you will own nothing and be happy. But, you know, the, the point here is with, with that phrase, uh, you, the underclass, may own nothing, but the elite billionaire class is going to own everything. And that's why in the U.S., for example, you have Bill Gates buying up the farmland or BlackRock and Blackstone Capital uh, buying up all the real estate. They plan to be the owners and you will be the rentees who own nothing and are at their mercy. Uh, they will control your money through central bank digital currencies. Uh, if you look at the model for that being piloted right now in in China, uh, which the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England and other central banks are very eager to follow is that they have put an expiration date on money. So you can't decide if you save or spend your money, the government, uh, or rather the central banks uh, and <laughs> decide uh, for you. And of course, in the US uh, instance, the Federal Reserve, that's not really a public institution despite its name as I'm sure your audience uh, knows. So it's those actors, the central banks that decide when you spend your money and when you don't, you no longer have that type of, type of financial control in a, in a broader uh, <clears throat> effort, you know, the war on cash and also this coming uh, push to regulate and potentially uh, outlaw uh, cryptocurrency is an effort to end uh, the ability for people to conduct anonymous financial transactions, uh, a desire to surveil uh, what everyone spends their money on, and also to uh, end people's ability to have control over their own money. And then a UBI, universal basic income, uh, also ties into that uh, to a degree as well. But that's also tied into some other complicated topics like uh, pushes for automation and the so-called fourth industrial revolution among other things. So I really want to stress that this WEF vision of collectivism, which is designed to appeal to the left and the progressive left, um, specifically in the West, is, um, is, is, is their talking point and their selling point, but in practice, that's not what this is about at all. Uh, so, you know, if you uh, have, you know, if there are any people on the left or progressive left watching this, or, you know, you have friends that are, uh, I would encourage you to point this out. You know, why are you trusting the billionaires? Uh, to, to tell you uh, what's good for humanity when these are the people responsible for a lot of the crises uh, that we are currently experiencing um, and have lied to us consistently about numerous things uh, over the decades. You know, I, I, I would really hope that we uh, stop trusting these people, but people look to leaders and to organizations and things like that in time of in times of crises, and they're obviously manipulating uh, that right now. But uh, we we trust them at uh, at great risk.
Well, it's it's instinct to, to trust, and we it would it's a much easier life if you don't have to distrust everybody in in your whole chain. And <laughs> it'd be great if we could trust. And I think that that I think there was an, a period of time when we could have, um, you know, back when maybe in the fifties, not to you know romanticize the that far past, but you know, back when 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 there was some noblesse oblige, right? When, when CEOs said no, it would be unseemly for me to take more than. 40 times what my lowest paid worker is. And now they can take a thousand times and nobody blinks. They get applauded for that, right? There's just no, it, it really feels like a, if it looks like, smells like, and acts like a giant looting operation, it just might be one, you know? And so a conversation I have quite regularly behind the scenes um, with one of my members is about what's the ticking clock? I feel like there's this urgency to what we're seeing today. And maybe this is just how you accomplish this move from a many national, you know, you got French people, U.S., and, the, and you want to go to this one world thing. You have to push hard and fast. You have to overwhelm people psychologically. Maybe that's it. But I actually think the WF gave it away. They have this beautiful slide presentation and they talk about it's right there, right up front says, oh, by 2050, we're going to need three planets or resources. We only have one. So you only have two levers if you believe that story. One is fewer resources per person. Your second lever is fewer people. You get to decide how you want to maneuver those two levers, but you, unless somebody's going to argue we have a second and third planet hidden on the far side of the sun that we missed, right? This, this, this is the story. That's what they lead off with. We're going to need three planets or resources. We don't have them. I think this explains much of their behavior set at this point in time. And by the way, I'm not at all um, allergic to the what of that. I get that the math is actually very real. How they're going about it, I have huge disagreements with. Would you do? You, do you at all think that they? What's your sense? What's their ticking clock? Like, what's driving them here? Do you think besides the usual, I want more money? Yeah, so a lot of these institutions and also uh, powerful individuals, uh, you know, it, it, driving a lot of these policies right now uh, have ties that go back decades to Malthusian beliefs or institutions that promote uh, Malthusianism. Uh, Malthusianism. So in the case of the World Economic Forum, their origins are closely tied to something called the Club of Rome, uh, whose first big paper was the limits of growth, talked about uh, this specifically back in the early 70s. And it was the topic of, I think, the earliest, if not maybe the second earliest uh, Davos annual meeting, World Economic Forum annual meeting uh, during the early 70s. The Club of Rome uh, was created by an Italian individual and a, a Scottish, and I forget their exact uh, affiliations, uh, but they founded it uh, at a Rockefeller-owned residence in Bellagio, Italy, um, and that is where this came from. And of course, the Rockefeller family since the beginning uh, of the 20th century have been intimately involved in eugenics. The Rockefeller family even went so far as to fund uh, Nazi eugenic scientists um, and various other institutions promoting eugenics uh, in the US, which actually uh, before uh, the Nazis did it in Germany was actually very prominent in both the US and the UK. Uh, very high ranking members of society were part of the eugenic societies uh, in both countries. Uh, as an example, the British Eugenic Society had people uh, like Winston Churchill as members. In the US, there was Margaret Sanger, uh, John Maynard Keynes, the famous economist was a member as well. So. Uh, within the elite circles in the U.S. and the U.K., this has been a very um, predominant philosophy for some time, even before the numbers. What is that philosophy? Um, essentially that, well, I would argue that eugenics is a pseudoscience. They don't really see it that way, but they essentially view themselves as a uh, 
better and more learned than the average person and thus able to decide, uh, make major decisions about the future of the human race and about improving fitness uh, of the human race. A lot of it is tied to uh, sort of pseudo uh, Darwinian thought uh, about survival of the fittest, but they determine, uh, of course, in these elite circles, what constitutes fittest and what is fitness and what is not fitness. Um, and, you know, this led to a lot of controversial policies in that period. Uh, in the early 20s, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled that a woman who had been uh, abused throughout her whole childhood was too stupid uh, to reproduce. And they forced her, both her and her daughter, uh, to be sterilized. And that was a decision of the state. So you start involving the state in deciding who uh, gets to reproduce and who doesn't. Um, it gets dicey very quickly. And, uh, you know, these are you know, the Rockefeller um, family. You know, they went on to advance these policies through things like the Population Council, which had a lot of very close ties to the Nixon administration uh, and also influenced Henry Kissinger's uh, national security memorandum um, about how the in, in the I think it was the early 70s 74 um, about how the uh, growth of the developing world uh, was a direct threat to national security so the U.S. should take covert action uh, to reduce the populations of those countries uh, focusing mainly on Southeast Asia Africa and Latin America so uh, as far as we know, that's still U.S. policy today. It's still uh, on available on the U.S. aid uh, website for download, uh, among other things. And it was classified, I think, until 1990, despite the fact that it was written several decades prior. Uh, but definitely for decades was a, was a guiding influence there. Kissinger, of course, having ties uh, to the Rockefeller crowd and being one of the most influential uh, thinkers and influencers still today in, in U.S. politics. And some of these eugenic societies, I should stress, are still around today, but under different names. Uh, the Population Council is still around today. Uh, Stephanie Pisaki, uh, the, the sister of, the, of Biden's press secretary, is now the top uh, advisor on human rights to the Department of Health and Human Services before that position, which she had in March 2021. She was a director at the Population Council, uh, founded by the Rockefellers, which uh, not that long ago, uh, back in the late 60s, uh, was arguing to put uh, sterilants in the drinking water without people's consent in urban neighborhoods in the U.S., um, among other controversies like their uh, uh, past trustees' involvement in the T Tuskegee experiments, um, among among other things like that. I think that's pretty significant and I'm pretty amazed um, that hasn't been talked about. <clears throat> uh, talked about more. Um, in the case of uh, the UK, for example, their eugenic society uh, maintained that name until 1989. They renamed themselves the Galton Institute, uh, uh, naming themselves after the founder of eugenics, Francis Galton. So it's not exactly like they were really uh, trying to distance themselves that much from eugenics. They say so, but if you really wanted to distance yourself from eugenics, would you rename yourself to being to glorifying the legacy uh, of the person who uh, founded eugenics uh, with very racist justifications for doing so. I uh, don't agree with that personally, um, but the Galton Institute um, has a lot of ties to what today is the uh, Wellcome Trust and actually one of the lead developers of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, Adrian Hill, uh, gave a speech at their 100 year anniversary celebrating 100 years of what is essentially uh, eugenics um so hello this is patreon calling <laughs> that's what got you in trouble right there you can't you can't point those facts out 
<laughs> that's well. I want to. I want to subtly. I not subtly. I want to. I want to d- disentangle two things: the the concept of eugenics and Malthusianism. Um, I'm a Malthusian in in the sense that I know I'm a biologist by training. Um, every every organism grows into its available resource and then usually overshoots and does that. And and every piece of data I track as a biologist, um, you know, background says we're an overshoot. Right. We, we've lost thiamine in the oceans. How do you wreck the B vitamin cycle? We don't know, but we've done it somehow. It's amazing. Um, we're losing topsoil. Uh, we're losing major aquifers on and on and on. Like, like there is a limit to growth at some point. There is some sort of limit. The question is, how do you get to that limit? Does, does nature just sort of balance things out perfectly? Not in my experience. So the question is, what do you do? I think this explains the WF. I think there are people there going, what do we do? And I think they're thinking of things to do. I, I happen to think we live in a complex system and complex systems have emergent behaviors and they can't be controlled. So I don't agree with the control freak thing. If we put all our chips on black and we're going to do the control freak thing and it's going to, you know, it either works or it doesn't. I think the doesn't in that story is very dark. <laughs> That's why I do what I do. What I do want to add to this discussion is the fact that this agenda even if the data looks very concerning now, and there definitely is a major environmental destruction and major environmental issues we have to grapple with now, uh, this agenda uh, for population control and eugenics uh, precedes that data by many, many, many decades. And in the case of the Rockefellers, for example, uh, they, as a family, were major drivers of a lot of that environmental destruction and a lot of these government policies that have led to these issues um, that we see today. Um, So, you know, I think there's a couple different levels here. Uh, You could argue maybe that uh, the Rockefellers wish to create a situation where eugenics and, and these other pet projects of theirs would become viewed widely as a necessity in order to ensure the survival of the human race. But I really want to stress that this agenda uh, precedes uh, those stressors uh, considerably. And you could argue that the people that were advancing that agenda way back then are responsible for a lot of the of the current situation um, as it is now. And um I think their agenda, ultimately, if you also, again, uh, look at the Rockefeller family and things like their influence on on the education system uh, in the 20th century and whatnot, is uh, mainly focused on control, uh, the desire for uh, compliant automatons as workers, essentially, uh, that maintain uh, the lifestyle uh, for the elites and who don't challenge the status quo. And I think if you look at some of these more technocratic ambitions um, of these groups, as well as the transhumanist agenda or the surveillance agenda, uh, it ultimately feeds into that. And uh, it's very, uh, it's no coincidence that you have uh, the eugenics agenda and the transhumanist agenda intersect in a big way when that term was actually coined in 1957 by the founding director general of UNESCO, brother of Aldous Huxley and a former president of the British Eugenics Society, uh, Julian Huxley, who in, uh, well, first off, a year after World War II and everything that happened there, he called for eugenics, uh, the unthinkable about eugenics to be made thinkable again. Uh, he was very eager to do that right, right off from the bat after uh, World War II. 
Uh, and then a little over a decade later, in 1957, he writes a book, I believe the title is New Bottles for New Wine. And in there, he argues that the new eugenics uh, should become uh, a combination of eugenics-related scientists like genetic engineering uh, with transhumanist uh, technologies like neurotechnology and things like that to create a what is essentially a human 2.0, and that is where he coins the term transhumanism. So from the perspective of, of these elite circles in which Huxley operated, um, you know, they viewed transhumanism as a successor uh, sort of to eugenics. And I would argue that is to create, uh, you know, the perfect person and whatnot. But some of these eugenics too, eugenicists too, going back, uh, you know, uh, over a hundred years, uh, one famous example, H.G. Uh, Wells, the famous author, uh, also a eugenicist, he talked openly about how at some point, uh, the human race would fork and there would be an underclass that were squat and goblin light and ate bugs. Sound familiar? Uh, <laughs> and there would be, uh, you know, a, a tall, attractive elite upper class and there would be this forking and that the underclass would serve the elite class and all of that. So, you know, it, uh, we can only I, suspect where, where this exactly will go with this. What we're seeing now at this desire to create a neo-feudal society and you will own nothing and be happy and you will eat bugs and all of this stuff. It seems to look very similar to some of these uh, agendas that are really, you know, really over a century old. Now, now the, this is fascinating to me. So, so uh, again, from my biology background standpoint, nature is infinitely complex. And we now know that our DNA talks to the world around us and, and, and like bad experiences can be passed along. You know, we know that from the epigenetics, all that. It's really clever. Um, so the idea that you can sort of pick an overclass and an underclass, uh, very bizarre to me. And, and two, two examples. There was just an article in the New York Times about this 10-year-old kid coming out of a homeless shelter from Nigeria. And he's now, he beat his first grandmaster at chess. So he's just this chess prodigy, arose out of, out of the ashes, right, as it were. And on the other side of that story, we would have Hunter Biden, right, just sort of showing... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, those are some extreme examples, but yes, maybe, I, I see. But but if but that system you're talking about, I feel like it would have sort of said the Bidens are what we need more of, and the Nigerians are who we need less of, right? But in this example, we can see that nature said no. That that idea that genius genius pops out where it's going to, and we don't know what kind of genius we're going to need because we face a very different future from the past, right? Yeah, this is a this is a great point because I think ultimately these people uh, don't really care about what nature does. They even see nature itself as something that should be controlled and dominated by them in service to their uh, agenda of what is essentially control over what they think is best, and they see themselves as essentially guardians of the human species. And they, uh, this this elite group, gets to determine uh, where uh, we go as a species and where we where we don't go. And a lot of the, this ideology about dominating nature, you know, a lot of it has its roots in, um, you know, uh, things like Calvinism and different versions of, of Christianity back uh, several centuries and, and things like that. Um, and even things like Manifest Destiny in the United States, uh, this view that the land and nature is something to be controlled, living in harmony with nature is savagery and things need to be civilized and brought to order. Order must be brought to chaos. Nature is chaotic um, and, and things like that. So, you know, that tends to be the ideology uh, here. And, you know, I would argue uh, that it, uh, this may ultimately lead to their, their downfall because they fundamentally don't understand how how nature works, uh, as mm -hmm. you pointed out, but also in their efforts to replicate consciousness with artificial intelligence, they also don't understand how consciousness 
uh, works. These are arguably the most unconscious people uh, in the entire world trying to replicate Bingo. Uh, consciousness. Uh, they're control freaks. They're not necessarily the most intelligent. They may think that uh, trying to create, you know, intelligence and, and a godlike figure uh, in their image. You know, if you make someone in the image uh, a machine in the image of Klaus Schwab, for example, I mean, it's just going to be a, a deranged sociopath uh, at the end of the day, not not the godlike singularity that a lot of these people um, are yeah. expecting. So I think at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, it's this hubris uh, this obsession with dominance and control uh, that will lead to their downfall. The question is, uh, how much damage do they cause uh, in the interim until uh, that happens? That that's also perfectly well said, and right up right up the center of the pipe for me. Because um, the older I get, the less I know for sure, right? And the more impressed I am with how intelligent nature is. I mean, wherever this coronavirus came from, I'm 99% sure it came out of a lab. But however it came about, it's just 38 kilobits of information. And it does all of these complicated things you couldn't know about, right? And and because of that, we've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I did not. I thought vitamins were an expensive way to take a piss. And now I know that actually vitamin D is a critically missing hormone in most people's lives. And that when you put it back in, amazing goodness results, right? Um I didn't. I learned that ivermectin is this crazy thing that's it's anti-parasitic, but it seems to have anti-cancer. It's anti-inflammatory. It's also deeply antiviral. Um, it, how would you have known about that unless you had intelligent people factoring through this highly intelligent piece of of data called uh, an RNA virus that came in that taught us a bunch of things, right? It's it's you have to have humility and an open inquiry. But everything I've seen in COVID has been about shutting down that conversation, not learning from stuff, cramming down these top down, you know, we want these new things to come through. So um, in the time we have, if you could, you know, the more I look into these mRNA vaccines that just popped out of nowhere, the more I realize they've been in development for a very long time. They too have a DARPA background. They too have like a really weird past that's like how did they know how did ralph barrick know to to actually license that mrna vaccine in december of 2019 before anybody knew there was a thing called this coronavirus coming along how did all those things happen i'm sure you've looked into it at least somewhat um i know you you have so what, what's what's your view on these things what is going on here with these mrna vaccines you know next best thing since sliced bread or is there a a, a darker thing going on here Great. So um, I am more aware with the, the DARPA origins uh, of these. And that's why back in January 2020, I was like, well, it's going to be Moderna and Pfizer because they were the uh, vaccines. Uh, and I also thought maybe Inovio Pharmaceuticals, the DNA vaccine uh, would manage to, to come out. But I think that was too controversial for people. The DNA vaccine, mRNA, they're like, oh, doesn't affect your DNA. They could sell that more easily than they could with the DNA vaccine. But anyway, all three of those were funded by DARPA. Um, and of course, DARPA has a lot of, um, and the U.S. military more broadly has a lot of interesting connections uh, to the origins of COVID-19. Uh, there was also a, a controversial lab leak at Fort Detrick, um, among, among other things, in 2019. Uh, and of course, EcoHealth Alliance receives a, a massive amount of its funding uh, from the U.S. military. And I want to know about these mRNA vaccines. Right, right. Yeah, okay. where are these things, where do they come from? Yeah, so uh, DARPA, uh, since the early 2000s, has had a lot of uh, uh, healthcare-focused projects, healthcare, they say, uh, mm -hmm. and one of their interests, uh, going back to like 2010 or so, uh, was in developing uh, plug-and-play vaccines that could be developed more quickly um, and things like that. So around 2012 or so, 
uh, this DARPA program manager, uh, I believe his name is David or Daniel, I think it's David Wattendorf. Uh, he's now Special Innovations uh, Director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, he approaches uh, the then director of DARPA, Regina Dugan, and pitches her uh, the mRNA vaccine uh, uh, idea, essentially. And uh, uh, by 2013, well, well, Dugan during that meeting greenlights those efforts, and that eventually results in DARPA's investment in both uh, Moderna and Pfizer's mRNA programs in 2013, uh, several, several years uh, before the COVID-19 crisis. Um, emerges. Um, Regina Dugan, uh, shortly thereafter, after greenlighting this, goes and sets up a DARPA equivalent at Google, uh, then at Facebook, uh, and now runs the Welcome Leap, uh, which is the global health DARPA of the Welcome Trust. Um, so that this is a very significant uh, woman that was involved in essentially greenlighting this for the U.S. military. Um, and I think, you know, the DARPA connection has sort of been left out of the discussion here. Um, but as far as, you know, how this developed over time, I'm personally more familiar uh, with, with Moderna's efforts. Um, Stat News, if you're familiar with them, is a mainstream media, a health, specifically healthcare focused um, news outlet. They have very uh, several very telling articles about Moderna from 2016 and 2017. Uh, one of them, the one from 2016, is about their extreme secretiveness um, as a company, um, how their CEO was very uh, cutthroat and very extreme, uh, and how they were the most highly valued a biotech company at the time, but had zero products in the market and just had products in their pipeline and kept encountering uh, difficulty after difficulty uh, with getting products uh, on the market and getting them past clinical trials. Um, the article in 2017 sheds light on some of those, how those difficulties were so pervasive uh, that they needed a quote, Hail Mary uh, to save uh, their company in the sense of being able to get products on the market because investors were starting to uh, ask questions, not necessarily the DARPA investors, uh, but, but some of the other ones that expected some sort of return on investment um, at some point uh, after pouring you know, a considerable, a considerable amount of money into this very heavily uh, hyped company. And one of the problems that they kept experiencing uh, was an issue with nanolipid particles, which of course are in the COVID uh, mRNA vaccine that Moderna produces uh, and the other one as well. <clears throat> but in, in the Stat News article, it openly says that Moderna's issue was if the, if the quantity of nanolipid particles is too low, the vaccine uh, doesn't work and has essentially 0% efficacy. Uh, if it's too high, it's toxic to the people that take it. The, the mRNA vaccine becomes toxic to the people that take it. And there was no indication since then that that effort was ever uh, resolved by Moderna. Uh, and I think that's pretty significant. Um, in terms of, you know, essentially what happened with COVID-19 is that, oh, well, we have to rely on technologies, vaccine technologies that can produce a vaccine as quickly as possible. Uh, thus, we must use mRNA. And that was essentially the sales pitch. A lot of these concerns about those platforms that were openly discussed in, in prior years were, were erased from the conversation. Uh, now, uh, those of us that are willing to report on it, uh, we'll, we'll point out the issues that have cropped up since it has been widely rolled out, more widely rolled out in some countries than others. Um, 
but there are concerns here. It was openly admitted uh, before COVID that this was experimental. Um, in mainstream media reports, it was largely touted as a cancer treatment. It was described as gene therapy. Um, and, and, you know, that term in reference to COVID-19, mRNA vaccines is a big no-no, uh, which I find interesting how the goalposts move so quickly on that when there's no indication that a lot of their uh, issues with their uh, vaccine production platform were ever uh, resolved. Um, something else I do want to point out as well um, is that it's not just the developers of these vaccines, it's also the manufacturers and the manufacturers of several of the COVID-19 vaccines in the U.S. The company that was chosen is known today as Emergent Biosolutions. They used to be known as Bioport, and they have very disturbing connections to the 2001 anthrax attacks, uh, which, oddly enough, uh, rescued uh, their troubled anthrax vaccine program, which they had a monopoly over anthrax vaccines. Uh, their uh, the mandatory anthrax vaccine program was going to dump uh, Bioport, now Emergent Biosolutions. Uh, they were going to issue a report, the Pentagon was, how to do that in September 2001. Uh, conveniently, the same wing of the Pentagon looking for the trillions was also working on that and was obliterated in 9-11, so that report never comes out. And the anthrax attacks uh, later tracked to uh, a U.S. military base. Um, <laughs> or, or installation rather, um, you know, happens uh, shortly thereafter. And as opposed to people, uh, people in politics and Congress, high level people questioning uh, Bioport and demanding they be removed from this program are now asking for more and more of, uh, for the, of their vaccine, not just for the military, but also for first responders, for firefighters, for policemen, for teachers. Um, basically reversing a very, what uh, had previously been a very unfortunate situation for them. And there's a lot of other connections um, of that company, not only to the US military, um, but to groups that were doing experiments on gain of function uh, on anthrax uh, for the CIA and the military during that time that had teamed up with Bioport and all of that. And since then, um, they've been involved in numerous scandals uh, since the 2001 anthrax attacks, if that wasn't enough, um, and honestly should have had their 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 business shut down uh, numerous times. Uh, one of the experts on them would be Dr. Meryl Nass, who if you're interested in learning more, I'd recommend uh, checking out her extensive work on it and her involvement in the lawsuit brought against their anthrax vaccine that was uh, toxic, poorly manufactured, among other things. This company was chosen to manufacture most of the COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, uh, and there, there were a lot of problems that happened there. Of course, we know now uh, that they, they uh, botched a bunch of the uh, batches of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, but this could have easily been prevented by looking at Emergent Biosolutions' extremely corrupt and troubling track record. And also the fact that their head of quality control at this plant had no experience in chemistry or quality control or really pharmaceuticals of any type. He was a career military intelligence operative working in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and was also a Persian and North Korean lingual analyst. Uh, so why was he put in charge of <laughs> uh, quality control supervision at this plant? Um, you know, a lot of questions about emergent biosolutions. Um, I would stress also that the origin of emergent biosolutions, previously Bioport, uh, the port in Bioport stands for Porton Down, uh, the Fort Dietrich equivalent in the United Kingdom, uh, which combined uh, with uh, uh, former uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, Admiral William Crow, and uh, this rather corrupt uh, German-Lebanese family, the Elhebris, um, 
who uh, got into business with Crow when he was ambassador uh, to the UK uh, <laughs> during the 1990s. Um, a lot of scandalous stuff with the anthrax attacks, but I think it's very uh, instructive, the history of emergent biosolutions. So a lot of attention with these vaccines has been given to the developers, but I think it's also important to pay attention to the people manufacturing it because they get the formulas from the developers, but what is actually injected into people uh, is, is, you know, that's produced by the manufacturers. So we have to pay attention to both. And the fact that emergent biosolutions this company of all other companies, what was given this, um, this power is very significant. The man responsible for that is the, is the former under Trump, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at HHS, Robert Cadlick, who has a very scandalous history, has his own ties to the 2001 anthrax attacks, numerous ties to lies about WMDs, about Saddam Hussein that eventually led us into war, and numerous conflicts of interest uh, with the Al-Hebri family and Emergent Biosolutions himself. He used to be an Emergent Biosolutions lobbyist. He also used to be a lobbyist for uh, in the intelligence uh, and major intelligence contractors and very shady individuals. And he co-founded a company with Fuad Al-Hebri of Bioport Emergent Biosolutions uh, in, I believe, 2012. So um, uh, pretty amazed that there was no pushback uh, from that in Congress. But, you know, uh, as Rahm Emanuel said, let no crisis go to waste. Right. Well, so, so much to unpack there, but let, let me back up a tiny bit. So um, first, it was interesting, because I didn't know this, where you said that um, that there was a dose response on the mRNA that, that there, it crashes very quickly, like you give too much and, and, and you're out. Which highly, toxic. They, highly toxic. Highly toxic. They didn't have any sort of dosing on this, which was weird to me. It's 30 micrograms. I don't care if you're a 25, you know, pound overweight 12 year old or a 400 pound overweight 59 year old. Doesn't matter. Um there, everybody gets 30 micrograms. The second thing, and I got this from Robert Malone directly, we were, we were talking with um, these poor people on the other end. They were Stanford administrators who were starting to enforce everybody has to get vaccinated. And Robert Malone was on the other side saying, from a bioethics standpoint, here's some data, right? And they looked like deer in headlights. They couldn't get off that call quick enough. But he said- Data, yeah. Yeah, he said, there's two things you need. He said, you need to understand something. He said, this was regulated as a vaccine, not as a gene therapy. It is a gene therapy. If it goes down the gene therapy pathway, there are three things you have to know. You have to know how long does the gene therapy remain in operation. That is, you have to track its degradation. You put it in, Does it? how long is it there doing what it does? Two, how much protein is it going to code for that gets actually made? You have to measure that. Three, does the protein stay where you think it's going to be doing what it's supposed to do? Or does those it spread the, through the body? Yeah. Right. You, those are the three things you'd want to know that's different for a gene therapy than any other therapy. Other therapies, you're sort of looking for distribution through the body and half-life and stuff like that. But here you need to know how long does the product continue to be made? How much of it is made? Where's it go? He said, we don't know any of those things, but here's some data, right? And there's some very troubling data that it, it doesn't stick around, right? We know that the lipid nanoparticles at least go to the ovaries sort of preferentially into all sorts of tissues, right? We, we know that the spike protein travels about in the blood for some period of time, and we know it does some damage to some people under those conditions. So Despite that, it's been nothing but vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. The pressure, the push is, is just off the charts. So the question becomes, for me, when I look at the mRNA thing, I say, well, you could be the next best thing since sliced bread, but you can introduce literally any protein this way into the human system and have it create an antibody response against it. Any protein. Let's say I'm just making some up here. The proteins that coat the human egg 
um, proteins that that govern sperm motility, um, proteins that um, you know line the vessels of the uh, cranium. Whatever you want, you could if you inject it into people, you could cause them. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up here. If you had wild, crazy eugenicist dreams, right? You could say you could give vac- you could give this vaccine to people, and it would create antibodies against anything that you design and engineer to put in. So. I would think you'd want to know very quality control would be really important. So I was trying not to laugh when you were mentioning quality control because all I could think of was from the office. All I could think of was Creed, you know, he's in quality control, you know, like he can't remember. Like this guy has no experience, no ability to do quality control. And, isn't, and that's one of the most important things, particularly within mRNA, you, you, you're stringing letters together. And they have to be done just right. And then you have to package it just right. And if you get any of that wrong... It has very dire consequences. You, you really want to get that part right. Well, this is really scandalous with Emergent Biosolutions Bioport because in the case of their anthrax vaccine, their plant producing that was shut down by the U.S. government because they had mold and vials um, and just obvious visual contamination and stuff that was then mandatorily injected into U.S. servicemen and later tied um by several people to what is now known as Gulf War syndrome uh, when it was administered uh, in the early 90s. And that was supposed to be, you know, off written supposedly as a possibility, but really the evidence points to it um, being linked to the anthrax vaccine and numerous US servicemen that received it um, Mm -hmm. that had complications are very adamant about what they experienced. And it was later revealed in a lawsuit brought by veterans against the Pentagon over Bioport's anthrax vaccine but the Pentagon was administering it on an experimental off-label use for which it was not approved, and they won. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, the Pentagon finds a loophole a couple of years later and changes things around and gets to do it again. Uh, but, you know, this just shows you the track record of this company, which is just totally outrageous. And the fact that they were given uh, the COVID-19 vaccine contracts, given that history, is just scandalous in and of itself. Mm. So how do Whitney? How do you steep yourself in all of this and 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 stay positive in any way as a parent? Like like what what's your biggest concern for the future for your daughter? Um, uh, well, I mean there are a lot of things to be concerned about. Obviously, I do tend to, uh, despite what I write about and discuss, I tend to be optimistic because, as I mentioned earlier, I think the hubris of these individuals will be uh, their downfall. I think they've aimed too high. I think they've even gone too far now. A lot of the narratives people were fed last year are tripping over each other. People that wanted to question this stuff before are starting to do so. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing all these different uh, uh, issues uh, come to the forefront. Now, COVID wasn't enough to scare people. So now uh, it's climate change. Uh, now there's potential famines being engineered. Now there's even aliens. Aliens. Mix. Right. Uh, of course, uh, the alien hype this year, exclusively coming from a report authored by the Pentagon and the CIA jointly. Um, so you can ask yourself why that was chosen to happen this year and not previous years. You know, it's interesting. I mean, what better way to establish one world government when the aliens come um, <laughs> and things like that? Uh, much Lots easier to money. make that that sales pitch uh, as space one Force. humanity against the aliens, right? And Space Force as well. Money for Space Force, which I mentioned earlier, is a is a very long standing agenda that precedes the uh, Trump mm-hmm. administration's decision to create it by decades. So. Um, 
my concern is that um, probably my biggest concern is that people, uh, even those that are aware of what's going on, decline to do anything to prepare um, for uh, a lot of the crises that we are going to be facing down the line. Because, you know, as, as, as groups like the WEF say, you know, COVID was just the catalyst. There is much more to come. Several of these groups, not just the World Economic Forum, but the UN, uh, Welcome Leap, the Welcome Trust, and a lot of these other groups all oddly point to the year 2030 as the time when they want to have things uh, locked down, essentially. That's not that long from now. Um, so this is really the prime opportunity uh, to prepare now before things degrade further. I would argue the best way to prepare is to develop local, uh, resilient, and resistant communities. Um, and become less as as uh, as less dependent as independent um, of uh, the governments pushing this and the private sector corporations advancing this agenda as well uh, as we possibly can because I think that's the greatest way to starve them of their power. Um, I think more focus needs to be given to the academics, the researchers who are helping uh, facilitate and advance this agenda. A lot of them don't know, and a lot of them aren't used to any sort of public pushback. They're used to being relatively isolated in their lab and whatnot, perhaps send them emails about what they are being a part of and what they are helping advancing and what that means for the future of our children and for the species. Um, these people are obviously moving to target children, babies as young as three months old. Uh, Welcome Leap, this team up of DARPA Silicon Valley executives with the Welcome Trust openly uh, wants to uh, prune 80% of young children's brains from three months to three years old to an AI model of the perfect brain uh, by 2030. Do you want that type of future for our children? That essentially means the end of human creativity and imagination and in the production of essentially drone bee workers and automatons uh, and really just undercuts everything it means to be human and things that most humans who are sane and not part of the World Economic Forum uh, tend to enjoy. Um, so, you know, uh, we're really at a point where it, it's important to start drawing red lines about what we will and will not accept um, as, as a society. Um, so, you know, a lot of things that I would have thought <laughs> would have been red lines have already been crossed. There's a lot of parents, for example, that have allowed, uh, you know, their infants and very young children to be part of COVID-19 uh, experimental vaccine trials. Um, I think that has emboldened some of these people to think, well, we can do whatever we want to kids. And that's how the Welcome Leaps uh, first 1,000 days program, as it's called, that I, I just mentioned, probably came to fruition. Well, if they'll give us our kids for that 80%, shouldn't it be so hard down the line when people are increasingly desperate and whatnot? The less desperate we are and the less likely we are to look to these predators in government, in the public and private sector, you know, for handouts and free stuff and all of that, uh, the better we can weather uh, the storm and, and resist these agendas. So, you know, the people in the best position to do that are those that are aware um, of these agendas. But my concern is that a lot of them will just, you know, keep their activism online, as it were, and not take any real world action to prepare, prepare uh, themselves, their families, and their communities uh, for what's coming. And I think that's ultimately where this is going, because a lot of this agenda depends on us staying and uh, taking action only in the virtual world uh, and not doing so in the real world. So I would urge people, you know, do what you want online, uh, but make sure you combine that with real world action uh, that can resist these agendas and protect your communities. Yeah, uh, 
word that I love hearing resilient. So, so what does resilience to mean to you? I, I can tell you that, that this is, this is my home studio here. Um, and right outside I've got cows, I've got chickens, I've got a garden, I'm building soil. I'm building soil with an urgency, the same urgency that I saw, um, these vaccines being rolled out with. I don't, I can't explain it totally, but because I usually operate from the gut after synthesizing heavily in my brain, my urgency says that we don't have that much time to get resilient. Um, I don't know why I can't quantify that for you, whether it's cyber polygon and, you know, I, I, you know, there's only so many times you can threaten me and have the threat come true before I start to believe that your threats are meaningful. Right. So, <laughs> right. Right. So event 201 preceding the coronavirus release or however that came out a month later, you know, whether it was the 772 bombing um, that that was preceded by an emergency uh, all hands on deck uh, training for what would happen if a tube bombing happened, uh, whether it was the the planes being uh, simulated hijacked over uh, the US airspace on 9-11, on and on and on, cyber polygon. So, so that's the one thing that concerns me a lot. And, and because if you do knock out the internet in some meaningful way, Right. This is how we conduct our business at this, like the whole just in time inventory system just shreds if this doesn't work properly. Right. So that's why that's to me, that's what resilient is. It's like literally bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm working on that as fast as I know how in my own my my life. What are you working on? What, what does yeah, that mean? So uh, I would agree with that. Well, unfortunately, because of what I do and being demonetized, you know, I uh, in, in my age, I guess, um, you know, this isn't an, an industry that pays particularly well. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping that before the end of the year, I'll be able to buy <laughs> my own land. Um, I do have a background in, uh, in agriculture, actually, in agricultural ecology. That's what my degree was in university. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And I initially worked on that for the first part of my 20s before uh, originally writing about environmental issues and then uh, starting to write about all this other stuff uh, because I realized a lot of things weren't being covered appropriately. So, uh, you know, I have a very intimate knowledge um, of the importance of having your own food supply and meeting your own essential needs. Because I saw this among people my age in the U.S. I'm kind of a black sheep in this sense, uh, probably. Uh, but I noticed that a lot of people in, in the United States my age, millennials, what have you, um, don't really know how to produce the things that they need. I saw that uh, back, uh, you know, in, uh, in 2012, when I was graduating from college is a major concern to me, uh, that it, the, you know, people my age were not resilient, uh, in the United States. Um, I've spent most of the past decade leaving only recently because of uh, very authoritarian COVID policies, um, in Latin America. Part of that was because of cost of living, but also because people there still know how to produce, um, you know, uh, essential goods and can survive in the event of economic collapse, which has happened in places like Argentina uh, not so long ago and, thing, and things like that. You know, I figure that would be a good place to be. Uh, now I'm in the UK. Life has uh, brought me a lot of changes, um, you know, and I'm hoping I'll be able to. Uh, you know, rebuild that. Uh, but I think, you know, the fact that I have that knowledge and that experience uh, does uh, help. I have a, a large seed bank, uh, you know, investing in some freeze dried food until I can produce my own food to at least be able to support myself and my family a couple months if the worst comes to worst. I have a water filter, um, you know, things like that. There are some things that everyone can do, even if you, like me, are uh, stuck not by choice <laughs> in an urban environment. Uh, for the time being, uh, there are all things we can do 
to be more prepared. The more prepared you are, the better off you will be. Um, you know, it's very likely that there is going to be some sort of massive cyber incident because the end game here uh, is to uh, basically pursue what has been a, a decades old agenda of both the European Union and the United States government, uh, a driver's license for internet access, uh, a government issued ID in order to be able to go online so that they can know exactly what content you're consuming, what websites you're visiting, et cetera, all under the guise of combating cyber crime. Uh, they weren't able to do that in the years prior, uh, so they must manufacture consent for that. What better way to have a massive cyber criminal attack that impacts everyone's lives and has people demanding uh, that there be massive regulation uh, of the internet in the digital world in general. And this obviously is going to have major ramifications with cryptocurrency. They've already built that into that narrative uh, with the whole ransomware uh, side, side of things. Um, and conveniently, um, you know, this effort to reset the financial system, if you have a massive cyber attack that impacts the financial system, the economic bubbles that have been being inflated, um, mm -hmm for over a decade can be popped and faceless hackers can be blamed that you can attribute to a nation state you don't like or a terrorist group you don't like or uh, far right groups in the US or whatever fits the domestic terror strategy, whoever you want. Uh, as we've seen uh, with these recent supply chain hacks, all it takes is the CIA saying, it was likely these people. And that is enough for mainstream media to say, that's who did it. Um, no, uh, no evidence needs to be uh, publicly made. Actually, the company with the Solar Winds hack uh, that, that attributed blame FireEye, which was, uh, according to Bloomberg, uh, set up by the CIA, uh, said that only Russia was disciplined enough to conduct that hack. That's an opinion, not a fact. And, uh -huh. uh, and then their CEO got a postcard in the mail that he thinks was from Russian intelligence. So that's the extent of the Ooh. detective work being done and attributing who's responsible for what hack uh, with major global geopolitical ramifications as this goes forward. But it's pretty clear that, you know, what better way to absolve the banks and financial institutions and central banks that have been part of this economic bubble and corruption and malfeasance, you know, you can absolve them completely by blaming whoever you want. It's the perfect excuse. And um, I've done reports on this. Uh, the World Economic Forum partnered with uh, most of the central banks of the world and Wall Street, uh, as well as the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace to essentially map this out. Uh, and they also have a separate initiative that uh, deals with other aspects of this agenda uh, called the Partnership Against Cybercrime, which is uh, members of that include the U.S. Department of Justice, the FBI and the Secret Service, as well as uh, the governments of the U.K. Uh, and Israel and Microsoft, uh, other big tech companies uh, and Wall Street banks, uh, all coming together to plan what to do uh, to end anonymity as we know it online and even the uh, possibility or illusion uh, of privacy in the virtual world. So um, it seems very likely that uh, this is in their long-term strategic interest and they have said so. And these are not uh, you know, small fish. These are uh, big influential players that have the power to affect this kind of uh, policy change in the event that something happens and you, know, you can blame whoever you want. There's no real investigation and there's no critical reporting of these hacking claims, uh, which is something that has been very common in cyber cybersecurity reporting uh, for several years, relying only on cybersecurity companies most of which have deep ties to state intelligence agencies. So that's pretty telling. Um, so I think 
people need to be prepared about what will you do um, if you wake up one day and the internet's gone and you can't use any uh, sort of service or even business uh, that depends on it to run. Uh, we unfortunately have to think about these questions, how long those outages will last. Uh, we don't know, but the more prepared you are and the more time you spend even mentally preparing, if you can't physically prepare, mm -hmm. mentally preparing, that will help you. Actually, people that have um, uh, experienced economic collapse in places like uh, Argentina and Venezuela have, have openly said that one of the things that prepared them best was mental preparedness, thinking through these scenarios and when they when they happen, uh, not panicking and being able to think calmly and rationally about what to do um, as those events unfold. Um, so, you know, it's important to stress the importance of mental preparedness as well, but obviously the more you can physically prepare um, for these possibilities that are starting to look more like uh, inevitable than possible possible, um, you know, the better off I think we'll be. Yeah, well, very well said. So this all, I mean, this is just business by any other name, right? So, so there was this underwear bomber mysteriously, like just, you know, has an IQ. Brought well, through TSA, yeah. Well below 100, somehow gets led up to a, a you know, a, a desk and has got his passport somehow, gets on the plane and oh my gosh, almost set off an underwear bomb. Wouldn't you know it? Michael Chertoff's company, I believe, is the one that had all those millimeter wave scanners all pre-built and ready to go. Yes. Right? It's just business, right? That's that's how you, that's called that's called marketing. That's what you do. And so, uh, I know people who've told me that there are small companies that are fending off the most vicious waves of intrusion attempts. That they, they these are like milk processors. They're mostly in the food business, right? That I've that I found. Yes. They're getting just daily, but they're like, this isn't like some hackers trying to get in with a little lame phishing attempt. Like they are detecting multiple intrusion attempts, little tiny companies having to fend this off. And they say it feels like state actors to them. It's too powerful. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Well, you have to look again at the strategic interest here of these powerful groups. And it's not just an effort to reset the financial system. The Great Reset, as, as it is sometimes called, is an effort to remake uh, pretty much every sector of the economy. And there has been a major focus on essentially moving the food system to a post-livestock uh, food system. Uh, and the, and, and uh, probably the best person uh, who's, who I've seen cover that specifically and who focuses on that is Christian Westbrook of the uh, Ice Age Farmer uh, mm -hmm. podcast and YouTube channel, um, because there is a lot of seeding of that narrative, whether it's from climate change um, or, or other angles. Um, it's definitely uh, this effort to basically say live, livestock are bad, uh, we need to get rid of them, and there needs to be uh, you know, either synthetic meat, lab meat, uh, plant-based meat, uh, or all these different uh, bug Insects, meats. don't forget the insects. <laughs> right, right, or all these other protein alternatives you know, need to uh, replace livestock. Um, and things like that. There's, uh, and, and, you know, basically uh, also uh, basically take human farmers out of the equations, make an AI farm. Um, it, they've uh, piloted one in Australia. It's been heavily promoted, but I mean, if you, if this was really about a green agenda, why not promote small scale family farming or permaculture um, or responsible practices of animal husbandry um, or any number of things. They don't want to do that. They instead want to bring in more machines and AI that are going to run on energy energy and you know maybe it's green energy but they'll use uh they'll re require large massive data centers they'll require um 
minerals that are uh, uh, mined in a way that is environmentally exploitative um, to uh, developing nations or to uh, even the U.S. is believed to have uh, rare earth minerals in places like Nevada. The U.S. government plans to open up the mining of those uh, to compete with China, which has the most of them, or uh, mine the deep sea for these minerals and whatnot. So it's not exactly environmentally friendly. The actual environmentally friendly alternative is to return to more uh, historic methods um, of agriculture that have been proven to work in concert with nature uh, and require less input and, you know, nature, the natural system does most of the work. Uh, and, you know, I think that is a, an obvious hole in the climate change thing, as is the fact that, well, if CO2 is really the issue, why not just plant trees instead of solve it with carbon markets? Uh, you know, these are discussions these people don't want to have um, uh, because there are obvious holes in, in their game here. Um, but what they ultimately want is to remake the food supply, because going back to Kissinger, who we've mentioned a couple times, uh, he's believed, uh, or the quote is attributed to him, you know, if you uh, control the food supply, you control the people. Um, and I, I think these uh, people behind this agenda ultimately see that as, as something that is definitely true. Well, it's absolutely an agenda. This year, I, I can't get away from them. Maybe it's just my Twitter feed, my, my, my uh, you know, social media feeds or the way I surf the news. But I just keep reading about they got the lab now that, that can produce a thousand hamburgers a, a week of lab grown meat. Uh, a, a guy I know very well, he's a he's a large animal vet in Maine. His eight year old came back from formerly called English, now called language arts with an essay that they had to write on how fields could be more productively used to grow insects rather than cows in a farming community in Maine. And so these people have the power, Whitney, to float a trial balloon about this in March of, of 2020, and it's already on the curriculum in Maine. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. It's very hard to do that. Yeah, Otherwise. well, one of the driving forces uh, behind, behind ed tech and sort of this uh, broader education uh, changes that we've seen, you know, really since the 60s and 70s has been UNESCO. As I mentioned earlier, the founding director general of that was Julian Huxley, who came up with a lot of the uh, ideology of of what we previously discussed. That's not uh, very nice when you, uh, you know, read between the lines and, and get down to what it actually uh, means. Mm -hmm. um, and for an in-depth discussion of that, uh, uh, John Klesek, who's a contributor to Unlimited Hangout, writes specifically on the education angle and how it's been manipulated um, through various means uh, and, and for various agendas if people are, are interested in that whole UNESCO angle uh, more. But, you know, I, th there's definitely an effort to target children specifically. I think that's why they rolled out Greta Thunberg, uh, someone so young to be the face of this, uh, to sort of get other kids on board. And you have movements like the Sunrise Movement that if you look into... Uh, their funding have a lot of billionaire connections, not exactly as grassroots as they like uh, to claim to be, you know, uh, basically trying to get a lot of the uh, youth on board with talking points about collectivism and all of this stuff, but lacking any sort of real discussion about what these things actually mean. And that's also true with, you know, uh, politicians who are actually in reality more like Instagram influencers, uh, like AOC, for example, um, uh, parroting a lot of these talking points, promoting a Green New Deal, when, for example, she won't include anything about the U.S. military in the Green New Deal when, you know, they are the largest consumer of fossil fuels and the world's biggest polluter, uh, dumping uh, several 
uh, uh, more than 10 tons of potentially toxic metals every year in Puget Sound in, in Washington State alone uh, and responsible for most of the Superfund toxic sites recognized by the EPA throughout the continental US. No discussion of them. I think that's uh, pretty significant that in the Green New Deal, uh, certain institutions and companies and organizations, just like they're exempt from paying taxes, will be exempt from Green New Deal policies, while it will be focused on this underclass that all of these policies are seeking uh, to create and, and restrict their uh, activities while not restricting the activities of uh, the privileged elite, whether those are individuals or institutions. Um, you know, it's pretty clear where this is going, but there's a clear effort to uh, capture the youth, uh, get them young, and that involves um, manipulating the education uh, uh, curriculum, also manipulating uh, the TV shows that children watch and the media they consume and the heroes they look up to and who were promoted to children as, as leaders and heroes of their generation and, and whatnot. Well, in the UK, sorry to say, but you, you, as far as the children go, you now have a, a um, rainbow dildo butt monkey reading. Uh, yes, I saw. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just You can't keep well, track of it. the US has, has uh, their version of that as well. We, 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 we do, we do. We, we've got drag, drag time story hour. But um, so, so I, we've taken a lot of your time. I know we could keep going because your, your wealth of knowledge is amazing. But I want to I wanna make sure that you get to that farm that you need and deserve. So... How can people support you? People, you should support Whitney. She's doing amazing work here, and uh, I would love for people to be able to support you. So your Patreon's down. How can people yes. help you out here? Um, well, if you go to my website, unlimitedhangout.com, uh, there is a support us tab, uh, which provides you with many options uh, for people that prefer to use cryptocurrency, for people that don't, uh, for people that want to use PayPal, for people that don't. Um, I also have a member or membership option uh, available there where you get access to uh, my premium content and a weekly uh, ask me anything uh, opportunity where I will answer uh, answer questions for uh, for members and also have a subscription option through uh, Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N, uh, that does uh, help me monetize stuff and was able to help me replace my Patreon uh, relatively quickly. So I'm very grateful uh, for that. And I also, my uh, the content that I do paywall, uh, content that I paywall is only for the first four or five days and then I make it public. And so it's basically for early access because I don't want to keep my content behind a paywall indefinitely. Um, uh, it, that's, you know, it, not for everyone, but that's how I do it. So um, uh, you can support me on there. It's uh, $10 a month and you also get access to uh, the premium content of every other content creator uh, that's on the site. And there's a, a mix of uh, people uh, that are well known on both the left on the right uh, on that platform for those that are interested. Uh, any support is greatly appreciated. It allows me to continue to do what I do. Uh, it also helps me to finance my upcoming book on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, uh, One Nation Under Blackmail, that unfortunately Unfortunately, uh, I have a very gracious publisher who was willing to publish uh, the contents of that book, uh, which other publishers would uh, deem too controversial. But unfortunately, because of their size, they weren't able to pay me in advance. So I uh, have to just sort of, uh, you know, work as uh, as I can. So that's why I've had to delay the book, um, uh, you know, uh, once or twice, uh, but I don't plan to delay it anymore. So, um, you know, there's different ways you can support me. Anything is, is greatly appreciated and allows me uh, to do the work that I, that I do and also to, to pay the several great contributors uh, that I have to produce the work they do for my site as well. One Nation Under Blackmail. When does that come out? Um, early 2022. Great. Early we'll look forward year. to that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll help promote that because uh, a great story on there. There's, that's a fantastic uh, 
really well-researched story. I didn't want to accidentally say a fantastic story because it's a dark story. It's it's not a good story but in terms of... In terms well, it's of, not a bedtime story, but it is very construct, uh, instructive is. about how uh, the, the power that be, the real government in the U.S. operates, because I'm not just talking about Jeffrey Epstein. I'm talking mm-hmm. about um, this union between organized crime and intelligence agencies I mentioned earlier with the OSS and the National Crime Syndicate, how that never went away, how that continues, and how... Uh, the successors to the National Crime Syndicate are largely responsible for funding uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Leslie Wexner leading up that group. It's uh, very telling that he did not get enough uh, press attention or critical reporting on his activities as that scandal unfolded. I would say that's a testament uh, to his influence and power. Um, but well, there was that guy from the Apollo Group. He he had to lose one of his two titles. So, I mean, what more do what more could a man have to go through? Oh, yeah, must have been rough for him, right? Oh, man. But, you know, uh, his ties to Epstein are quite documented, but there was no interest, for example, in pursuing uh, the uh, police report uh, written by Ohio police uh, in the 1980s that directly tied him to various organized crime groups. Uh, you know, that's public record. It's documented. That's not something that's made up. Um, so, you know, I really wish more people would pay attention to that. But anyway, all of that and much more will be in my book um, explaining the influence of sexual blackmail and how that morphed into electronic forms of blackmail, a la Silicon Valley and backdoors and all of those things um, as the decades uh, went by. So if you're interested oh. in that, um, you may oh. like my book. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm sure it's just fabulously well-researched and well-written. So thank you so much for your time here today. And uh, we'll do this again, I hope. And I wish you all the best and continue. And again, people can go to your website and help support you there. And again, unlimitedhangout.com. Check it out. Great articles there. Whitney, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.